This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. All right, what's cracking beer lovers? What up? All right. So let's you, talk about- You realize we do the same intro every week. You say, what's cracking, what's cracking beer lovers? And I go, what up? It's fine. It's our brand. Clearly, I just like <laughs> we are very one dimensional when it comes to intros on this podcast. But that's the opener is what's cracking beer lovers. We decided on that months ago. No, that's true. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah, it just worked because we're cracking beer and we're talking about theology and it's fun as crap. It is fun. Um, it so work when you're doing what you love. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the beer that we have tonight is fun. Um, I went to Total Wine, um, actually for personal reasons, but I decided to pick up beer for, um, PMP while I was there because we were running low. We were running low. Um, so I decided to get some while I was there. And so I walked to the beer aisle and, um, as I'm walking up, there's this lady who's hopefully listening. Hi, you probably recognize me. <laughs> and um, if you're watching on YouTube, you're actually listening on Spotify. So hi, <laughs> you can't see me. So um, dang, yeah, click. Um, F's in the chat for Clay. Yeah, F's <laughs> in the chat. Um, however, <clears throat> we have done beers similar to these. But she asked me if I wanted to try them. I said yes, because um, free beer, absolutely. Um, and yes. yes, truer statements have never been made. Free beer, yes. <laughs> you know, er, Ernest yes. Hemingway's famous for the six-word short story. He's in a bar with his buddies, and they commission him. They say, hey, you can't tell a story in six words. And so he spends a little bit of time and he goes, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. That tells a story. The, tr- the sh- true shortest story. Free beer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Done. Uh, we are not going to compare that to Ernest Hemingway's story because it... It definitely, there is a very different connotation. There is a it, it, his is a very different story. Yes. However, free beer. Yes. Um, t-shirt. T-shirt. Oh yes. T-shirt. Um. However, I tried both of these. Now one sip, right? You know the taste that they give you in liquor stores. So I didn't really get to fully pull it apart and really taste it as much as, yeah, this is pleasing to my initial palate. Mm. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And then uh, she was like, do you want to buy some? And I was like, yeah, actually, I'm doing a podcast and we're recording tonight where we pick apart beer. So, yeah, I'll buy some. And then she says she wanted to listen. So, hi, if you're listening, good to talk to you again. Um, but... There is a Oktoberfest um, that I have. Dang, that's what I was going for. 
Oh, you were going for the October. Do you want to switch? No, I'm we can. I've tried them both. They're pretty similar. Actually, I think you're going to like this one better, if I'm being honest. You think? Yeah. All right. Um, so we're switching. Cullen has the Oktoberfest now. <laughs> Locktoberfest. Yeah. Love it. Love it. The um, branding is on point. Yeah. So mine is the Fall Guy. Um, it is a spiced amber. And the brewery is out of Arlington. And the brewery is Legal Draft Beer Company. Um, Which I, I want to just say, do you remember from How I Met Your Mother when Marshall has this dream to own a courtroom-themed bar? Yes. Okay, they they have some of the best the best legal branding of all time because they're the called gavel. Legal Draft Beer Company. Their their logo is the gavel, but then they have the Beranda rights, yeah. not the Miranda rights, the Beranda rights, of which it says you have the right to drink great beer with flavor and character made locally and enjoyed with friends and family. Know your rights. Amen. Legal. Legal Draft Beer Company. Bravo. Way to Just go. 100%. Way to go. Bravo. Well um, done. Satisfying, and the description of mine is satisfying full-flavored amber ale with autumn spices. You can almost feel the nip in the air. And mm. I'm being honest with you. They're pulling a lot off of like experiential things in that description, but in my initial taste of this beer... I really got that. That was true, huh? Um, like the spices in this amber really was like, oh, yeah, it's fall now. Nice. That's what this is. Nice. And being a guy who loves fall yeah, really hit home with me. It's you fi- do love fall. I do love fall. That is true. I love fall a lot. Uh, it is... Five point nine percent. I've already talked about it being brewed um, in Arlington, and it has this really cool thing on it. Um, this little stamp. It says, "Get a fall guy." Mm. Way to go! The branding on this beer is fantastic. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's mine. All right. Well, I have their Oktoberfest, which they call the Locktoberfest, which I love. Spelled L-A-W-K-T-O-B-E-R. The description is <laughs> Fest beer style Oktoberfest with a hint of color in its body, a slight toast of malt, and a crisp finish that invites another sip. Hmm. Also, whoever your copywriter is, give them a raise. Yeah, this is genius. It. Yeah. This is all genius. 5.2%. ABV, and I, I guess I'm about to enter into a pretty classic Oktoberfest. Uh, it's a little bit lighter on the palate than a okay. typical Oktoberfest. I mean, I damn, I dang it, I should not have told you that. Um, it is what it is, though. I might cut all that out. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, I think I'm about to enter into a pretty classic Oktoberfest. So, cheers, yeah, buddy. Cheers. Oh, did you head up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah. I'm actually quite shocked. Um, mm. 
So walk me through it. That's really good. Yeah. Um, it's everything you think you want in Oktoberfest, but one of my complaints with a lot of Oktoberfest is they're really sweet. This is not. Yeah. This is not sweet hardly at all. Um, <coughs> that's firmly in my top three favorite Oktoberfest I've ever had. Wow. Fir- like firmly. So do you feel comfortable giving it a number rating? Mm. Or do you want to go back to it while I talk about mine? Talk about yours and then I'll come back to mine. All right. So mine isn't totally fair because I have already had this beer or at least a couple sips of it. Yep. Um, but let me walk you through what's happening here. Initially, you get that malty amber. Okay. Um, But then it develops into all the false spices. And that kind of sits with you for a minute. Yeah. Like that pumpkin spice kind of um, cinnamon, nutmeg, um, all spice kind of type deal. Yeah. So that's the thing that turns me off spiced beer is the all spice flavor. I don't. I don't think I like that in uh, in beer. I love allspice, and so for me, what I'm about to say next, this is a plus. Mm. For most people, I don't know if it would be. Mm. I kind of have this like lingering leather taste. Ooh, it's very Ooh. unique. Mm. Um, is it chewy? No. But I do have this, like, almost this kind of, almost kind of like the, very similar to, very similar to the lingering palate that I get on an Isla Scotch, which is very strange. What? Because you know that kind of, like, lingering leather thing? It's softer than that, and it's not as medicinal or as salty, but it's still got this kind of lingering to me, it's almost leather. Hmm. I mean, I know the flavor that you're talking about in Isla's, but I don't know how you would ever it's get it. It's not there. identical. Okay. It's just the closest thing that I can come to to describing that lingering palate. Um, Interesting. It's very good. Very good. Um, I quite enjoy it. Um, so legal draft, if y'all are listening, I'm going eight, one, and that's a monster score. Yeah. Like eight, one firmly like top three favorite October, like for monster score for Cullen. That is a monster score for me. I'm actually sitting at like probably an eight, five, eight, six. Mm. Um, but you actually give things tens. Uh, I haven't actually given anything a 10. Not yet, but you would. I would if I found something that was a 10. And you also start at a 5. Yes. Whereas I start at a 7. Yeah. That is the difference um, in our scorings. So for me, I'm sitting 8, 5, 8, 6. Mm. Um, quite enjoy this beer. 
Yeah, that's still pretty high praise. <laughs> really high praise. Quite, eight five, eight six. Yeah. Quite enjoy this beer. Um. So yeah, uh, we want to do a switch. Mm, I know I'm not gonna like yours. I don't know. Let's do it. Yeah. Taste swap. Oh, it's really sweet. I can smell it. Yeah. Yours has this fruit mid palate. Yeah. It's kind of fruity. Yeah. Um, not in a bad way, but yours is really sweet. I'm like six three. Mm. Like not not in my style at all. Right. I I agree with your rating though. Yeah, it's it's up there. Mm. It's up there. Mine it, it's it's more my style. It's different. It's funky. It's doing something outside the box. Yeah. Um, which with beer, if you want me to rate it well, if you do it right. Do something different. Do something different. Don't do the same old stuff. I'm bored yeah. with beer. The <laughs> favorite, uh, our, I mean, our favorite beer that we've ever brewed together is a black IPA, like a mix of a stout and an IPA. Mm-hmm. Um do so something yeah, different. Get creative. We're here for the creativity and the ingenuity and the in the in the beer brewing process. Yeah. Now, on to the theology portion of this episode. We are starting a new series, and I'll be honest. This is a question that I wrestled with immensely through my deconstruction. And to some extent, still wrestle with today. Sure. A question of the knowledge of God. Now, I was talking to our friend Andrew Barrett about coming on this podcast and having this conversation with me because he's going to be much more conservative on this issue than I am. And I think it's helpful to have that conservative voice sure. um, as well. And I'm just here like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Clayton's here to learn, ask questions, and and offer insights from the Holy Spirit when he gets them. Sure. Um, we'll, we'll say that. <laughs> but when I first presented to Andrew Barrett, what he thought I meant was our understanding, our knowledge mm. of God. Mm. No, 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 no. That is not what we're talking about. What we are talking about today and for the next few weeks is about God's knowledge of the world. Right. Now, you have probably been told that God is the omnis. Right. Do you remember what the omnis are? Omnipotent, omnipresent, and um, omniscient. And what do each of those mean? So omniscient is um, all-knowing. Mm-hmm. Omnipotent is all powerful, mm-hmm. and omnipresent is that he is everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. Thank you, Abeka Academy. <laughs> Do you know how many of those have biblical verses you could point to? Biblical voices, verses that you can point to? Mm-hmm. That directly state those things? Mm-hmm. None. That's not true. 
that directly state that God knows everything, that God no, that is any, everywhere? No, any of the omnis. Ephesians clearly points to God's omnipotence. Okay. So, like, yeah, you, you have lots of places you can point to for God's power. You don't have anywhere that you... And, and you can get there through the narrative reading for God's omnipresence, that okay. he's everywhere. The idea of the spirit, you know, that kind of thing. You can get there. I thought that largely came from tradition, though. So, it, well, we'll get there. Okay. Hang on. I'm going to set that up. You really don't have a single verse that explicitly tells you that God knows everything. Okay. There's really not anywhere you can point to. There are places people try, and kudos to you if you do. They're not convincing to me that that's what they're communicating. So that becomes a bit of a conversation because now we look around and go, okay, I've been told that God's the omnis. So where did that come from? Well, that comes from a guy named Anselm. Ah. A church father. He just kind of dreams it up one day. That's mm. not entirely true. That's an oversimplification. But yeah. yeah, it all stems from, the omni stem from Anselm. Mm, I never knew that. Of which he does not have any biblical basis for the omniscience of God. What's funny is I studied him in my intro to philosophy class. And that was... No, oh, he's a philosopher, yeah. Yeah, but didn't even touch this, so I had no idea. Yeah, he's he's the originator of the Omnis, hmm. and he's got basis. Like, you got places you can point to for the other two. But God's knowledge, God's all-knowingness isn't really there in the text. Hmm. You got to really stretch yourself to get there. Um, other than the catch-all, well, God who doesn't know everything isn't really a God at all. Right. That would be the modern kind of like argument. Like the text doesn't right. tell you that. I mean, that's Anselm's all, whole idea, right? Is that God is a, God. A perfect God who we have set up in the narrative must know everything. Correct. Now, Oh, <laughs> what? Now I understand. We didn't directly talk about God's omnis in that. That was his whole proof for how he could prove that God existed too. Correct. Was a perfect God also has to exist. Correct. Correct. Now. Get it now. Yeah. I only took that class four years ago, and now it like it all clicks for me. Come together. Good job, Prof. Like, <laughs> he actually did a really good job, but that's neither here nor there. Now, so I remember growing up, and I was fully given over to a fundamentalist faith tradition that fully affirmed the omnis in, in their traditional way. For me personally, now this is not going to be true for everyone. For me personally, that was a really harmful narrative. Because mm. if God became this all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present God, 
then where was he in moments of tragedy? Where was he when people needed him? Yeah. And then I read Genesis 3 and realized that, oh, wait, when Adam and Eve needed him, he was absent too. So maybe God's presence and God's knowledge and God's power shouldn't be the lens through which I view and judge God. Right. Maybe there's another one. So I went back to the beginning of the narrative. What's the one tree that you're not supposed to eat of? Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Good and evil. What if God's power, knowledge, and presence aren't the ways that we should be looking at God? And what if the way that we should be looking at God is through his goodness? Right. We kind of talked about that. We did. But here's why I set it all up again. For me, it was really harmful to have an image of God, the great puppeteer, the one that's just up there, uber transcendent, controlling all of the narrative because he's all powerful and he knows everything. That's really unfortunate for me. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it takes away the element of human free will. Like I, I, I don't think that's a helpful narrative at all. And so it brings this question, what does God know? And is there anything in the narrative can help us that can like help us go down this road, right? Because that's the other thing I would say. Mm, I'm actually not going to say that. I'm going to go in a different direction. Is there anywhere in scripture you can point to where the no God's knowledge of the world God's supreme knowledge of the world is questioned. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I'm sure when you give an example, it will make sense. Um, but God's supreme knowledge of the world doesn't... Hmm. Genesis chapter 22. God tells Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, the one and only son, the son of the promise of which God gave to Abraham, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then he has Ishmael, and God says, nope, it's not that. You're going to have a son from Sarah, and he has Isaac. Yeah, I'm pulling it up. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> When they came to the place the Lord God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. As if there was some question of Abraham's devotion before this moment. As if God didn't know how Abraham would act. How Abraham would respond. What would he do? Almost in the same way 
that God says to humanity, what will you do from the fall? Because if we're honest with ourselves, Genesis 6 is pretty revealing that God is starting over. God regrets where the state of the world is. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth and it grieved into his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. Then when he has a conversation with Noah, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupted in its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Go on, yada, yada, yada. So let's He's pause starting over. Yeah. Let, because yeah. the world ended up in a place that he didn't think. So let's pause for a second and wrap up for the listener. You went really fast there. So apologies. So let's wrap up what Cullen's trying to say. He started with Abraham and that was really clear. He kind of went back to creation in a way talking about how God's um, knowledge was questioned there or is in question. Um, not in creation. Not in creation. In the Noah. In the know of what was going to in, happen. In the Noahic Siri, like in that thing, because God seems to be starting over in that moment. In the Noah story. In the Noahic story. But then God seems to do it again at Babel. Right. In 11. And then again in 12 with Abraham. Right. Like each of these seem to be like God starting over, trying to figure out what to do next. They feel, and I say feel, because the text doesn't tell me this, but they feel very re reactive rather than proactive. Right. I would think that if God knew absolutely everything, that the story of Genesis 1 through 11, or really more more realistically, Genesis 3 through 11, wouldn't feel so reactive. Hmm. Like God's just reacting to the things that have already happened. Why would God ask Adam in chapter 3, where are you? If he didn't know. Why would he ask Cain, where is your brother? Well, but see, I think specifically with Cain in Genesis 4, that's more trying to elicit a response. And maybe you could make the same argument for Genesis 3, too. Well, actually, so I would agree with you in, in the Cain story. I was throwing it out there. But the Genesis 3 story, I don't think that's true. Because the text specifically says they hid from God. Well, they, they hid themselves from him, yes. But... They hid themselves from him doesn't necessarily, necessarily elicit the fact that he didn't know where they were. They could just be thinking that they're hiding from him. Right. We're going off what the text says, and God asks, where are you? I mean, that, that's really telling for me, um, especially when you have statements like we have in Abraham. For now I know 
as if right. I didn't beforehand. I, I hear you. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Oh, yeah. That's my well, job Well, that's your here, role on the podcast, yeah. Is asking questions when questions should be asked. Yeah. And am I being, if I'm being completely honest with you, I've asked these questions before. As any well-thought, critical Christian would. Now, right. I will also say, my friend Andrew Barrett, who I love dearly, would tell me I'm approaching the text with a hermeneutic of suspicion right now. Um, yes. He's not entirely correct, but he's also not entirely wrong. Also um, true. For me, the God who knows everything, if I'm just being honest, really isn't the God that I want to serve. So let's pause. We're at a place where we need to, we need to address this. This is not outside the creeds. It's not. The creeds do not say anything about God's knowledge. No. Um, they say God Almighty. They yes. speak to his power. But not about his knowledge. None. Or not his a presence. Lick. Um, uh, or well, his omnipotence, specifically. Well, so omnipotence is covered in Almighty. Oh, you would think so? I in would think so. In his presence or in his power? Well, um, if you say Almighty... Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, like, that's an all-powerful kind of statement? Well, back to Anselm, in a very valid way, if he is omnipotent and all-powerful, then he should be completely present and also all-knowing. If you are all-powerful... Ah, but why, why do you naturally think that power and knowledge go hand in hand? If you are all-powerful, you can give yourself the power to know everything. That is the basis of being all-powerful. It also presupposes that God, as he sits today, is all-powerful. Right, it does. It absolutely does. Which that's a whole brings new, up a whole other question, which, which we're going to talk about. Well, yeah, we're going to have to talk about that one next week. Um, because that brings up questions of lots of things. But I, I do wonder if there is suspicion needed here. I, I would say yes, hence the reason that I approached it with a pseudo-hermeneutic right. of suspicion. I'm s validating your suspicion, yeah. but also still like... Let's take the other point of view in serious consideration here. Well, for me, let me say, you're going to hear over the next few weeks, there are major problems theologically and narratively with the scriptures when you give God supreme knowledge. Right. Now, to all the listeners that are like, shaking in their boots right now because you've never heard this. This is still firmly orthodox. Mm -hmm. Like this does not put me in any kind of issue here. Absolutely none. For being a Christian. But the other thing that I would say is if you want to still affirm the all-knowingness 
omnipotence. No, omniscience. Omniscience. Omnipotence is power. Right, omniscience. The omniscience of God. There are two ways of which you can do that. You can say God knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. That's a version of omniscience. Mm -hmm. That's the like supreme version of omniscience. But there is another option. He knows every option. By saying that God knows every option available to each individual human still means that God knows everything. Because he knows all possibilities. The only thing he doesn't know is exactly which one you're going to choose. Which, if he did... Do you actually have free will? Because remember, he's also all-powerful. So can he not intervene and quote-unquote force you to choose the one he wants? See, but that brings into question the, the Calvinist argument of predestination. Like, God knows what you would choose, so therefore sets it in motion. Okay, but here's the deal. Calvinism has made that prominent in soteriology. Right. The truth of the matter is that question persists in every decision you make in life if you affirm God's omniscience. I don't think they deny that, though. No, they wouldn't. They, they absolutely would not. Yeah. I deny that. Right. I, the human responsibility element is, like, massive for me. Right. No. And I hear you, and that is one that I firmly agree with you on. Is the human responsibility piece. Um, That is a thing that needs to be considered, though, in the question of God's knowledge is, yes, he might know every option available to you, but he knows what you would choose, so he just narrows it down. And the transcendence of his nature which it also presupposes these transcendent right which again a different conversation <laughs> well so but, so much of it and this is why this is going to be a pretty long series but so much of this exists on presuppositions like that you you have a view of god not you but right you in hypothetical general. listener have a view of god in which you truly don't understand all the ways and elements and facets that that view of God affects other areas of your theology. Of which kind of goes back to our previous series. Correct. So if you, if you're here and you're like, man, I like these guys are all over the place. <laughs> Welcome <Yes>. to PNP. <laughs> yes. 150,000%. We are all over the place because we are about to talk about things for the next few weeks that are going to make you ask lots of questions, excuse me, really difficult questions about your theology, not, and here's the thing I have a, I have a podcast, I mean, I have a blog about deconstruction, um, and deconstruction is all about asking questions. But it's not the the purpose of asking questions is not to put yourself in a place of doubt. The purpose of asking questions is to ask yourself why? 
Why do I actually believe this? Because here's the deal. People are so afraid that if you take this, this string, which is a question that you have, a nagging question, mm-hmm. which for me, when I went through deconstruction, was how can a supremely powerful God who is also all good stand idly by as tragedy happens upon the world? And so I grabbed this string and I began to pull it. People are so afraid that when you pull that string, the whole shirt's going to unravel. Hey, Clayton, can I show you something? YouTube viewers, you probably can't see this string. I got a string on my shirt. Grabbed it. What happened? The shirt did not unravel. No, not at all. You know why? He's healthy to ask questions. It's healthy to doubt. If you believe that God is bigger than you, you can worship a God who's bigger than you, who still has room for your doubts. And I can prove it to you in the text. Can can I run with your analogy real quick? Go ahead. The string and the shirt thing? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. How many people are so afraid that if they pull string on their shirt that their shirt's going to unravel in a very genuine way they just cut it off or they burn it a lot a lot um now if you pull that string on your shirt it actually might leave some holes until it's fixed mm. you pull that string you are actually pulling substance out of that shirt yeah. You ask those questions, you are pulling that string and you are going to leave holes there until it's fixed. And that's until the deal. those holes are filled. They they must be fixed and filled. And that's what we're here for. We're here to be a support for you as you sure. go through asking these questions. We're not going to be the church where our number one goal is to indoctrinate you no. into our own our own, like, I'm not going to make you mini Cullens. No. My goal for you is to be a guide as you go on your own journey of formation, of which I'm going to make sure that you stay inside the creeds. That's right. But anything outside of that, cool. I'm here for. Yeah. I'm here. Or, unless you well, oppress people. On. Unless you oppress people. Right. If you oppress people, different conversation. No. Smackdown time. But Cullens, one of Cullens' best friends, a complementarian is takes a very conservative viewpoint on this Mm -hmm. and also takes a very conservative viewpoint on god and ethic on literally everything yeah yeah i mean he is a bleeding conservative when it comes not politically but but theologically theologically. yeah one of cullen's best friends is that um yeah and i can't call him one of my best friends but someone that like i hold very dear to my heart yeah um is is the same person so we are not going to ever in a hundred years judge you for how you come out of your deconstruction not at all unless it steps on somebody else Uh, unless you oppress people if you oppress people i i will literally like We will have a different conversation about that. Yeah. I, Go I, to let's talk. If if you oppress people with the most grace possible, 
I will go balls to the walls in an attempt to destroy you if you oppress people. Like, I got zero time, consideration, or patience for that. There could have been a little bit more grace in that statement. Well, that's why I said with the most grace possible. (laughs) But if you're oppressing people, I got very little grace for you. Now, back to my deal. My text for you to consider about whether or not it's appropriate to ask these questions. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus dies. It's been days mourning. Got no idea what to do. And Jesus just pops up one day. Like, hey, I'm back. Your boy, I'm here. It's like, oh, we're like, we supposed to just take all this? And see, here's the deal. There was a narrative given to you that doubting faith was wrong. And in fact, it wasn't even wrong. Mm. It was shameful. Mm. Who gave you that narrative? Or what story in the Bible gave you that narrative? What story in the Bible? Oh my gosh, I've never even thought about that. Oh, it's easy. His entire ministry is tainted by one moment. Doubting Thomas. You were told from a young age by his epithet that the only thing he's he's remembered for is his doubt. Yeah. You were told that doubting was wrong. But see, here's what happens. When you're a close reader of texts, you realize that a few chapters later, right before Jesus ascends, in one of the most famous passages of all time, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Don't think that doubt and worship are mutually exclusive, and don't think that doubt and questions aren't a part of your spiritual formation. We've got to change the stigma around doubt and questioning our faith because it's in the text What does Mark say? Lord, help me in my unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to change this idea that it's not okay to question. It's not okay to doubt. And it's not okay to ask these questions. You hear this. If you've ever been to college, you've heard, or at least I hope you've heard, critical thinking is good. Um... And largely in an academic stance, um, and I can't speak to this from a theological point of view, but it, in academia, but largely in academia, if you start asking questions, they're like, this is good. You should ask questions. You should think critically. You should question things because the narrative that you've been handed may be wrong. Critical thinking is good. And I don't know how this is largely presented in biblical or theological academia because I've never taken these kinds of classes, but I can imagine that it's the same or largely Um, the same. It depends on where you go. Okay. 
There are certain seminaries that their number one goal is to indoctrinate you and make you little mini-me's of whoever the president of the seminary is. Okay. Um, and this is not a pejorative. Like, a, a classic point two for this would be Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary or the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Like, those are places that their goal is to output mini-me's. Like... Southern wants to output little mini Al Molers. Mm-hmm. Like, that's their goal. My, um, my point is saying that deconstruction starts with critical thinking. And yeah. that is a very good thing to ask, or a very good thing to start with. And asking this question about God's knowledge... No matter where you fall on it currently or where you think that you might fall on it whenever you come out of it. Although I would challenge you, don't have an expectation on where you're going to come out of because that might lead you to a place. What kind of defeats the purpose. Right. So, asking these questions is good. It's healthy. It is very healthy. And... Honestly, this conversation that we're having right now is one that I am currently asking myself. And how long have I been asking myself this question and been deconstructing this idea? Several years. Several years. I have no idea where I fall on currently. (laughs) Maybe this podcast will help me get there. Maybe it won't. Well, here's the deal. Here's the good news. No matter where you fall on it, you're still inside the creeds. Well, not just that. I mean, the the truth still stands. No matter where you fall on this idea of God's knowledge, the truth still persists. Mm, God's still good. That you are loved. Yeah. That you are made in his image. That he would do absolutely anything for you. And that his goal for you in this life is to have life and life abundant.